Hi, true crimers. It's Mitz here. I've got a mishmash for you this week because Ben is on a train in Scotland, I think, or in a melting pit or something. He'll tell you more about that next by week but uh, he couldn't make it so he sends his love and apologies no he doesn't he's really unapologetic um so what have we got for you this week we've got a little trip down memory lane to this time two years ago uh, when we first reached your ears and you fell in love with our podcast or you fell into the pit that is our podcast so The reason I picked this one, which is called A Murderer Fights for Life, is that it contains the moment when Levi Belfield realises he's made a massive whoopsie, which has cost him his freedom and has landed him right in it. It's a phenomenal interview with former DCI Colin Sutton, who we all know... I hope, because if you don't, you've got to go and seek it out. His character stars in ITV drama Manhunt, played by Martin Clunes. So all of that is something really worth revisiting. And I'm really pleased to be able to get the chance to put it forward. Also at a time when the serial killer's been in the news again, asking permission of the prison governor to marry at HMP Frankland in Durham and making as yet unproven admissions to the murders of Lynn and Megan Russell and also the brutal murder of a 14-year-old childhood pal of his, Patsy Morris. That remains a mystery. 42 years later, so... All of that hangs over Levi Belfield's head as well as the murders he's committed. Quite a despicable man, so that's always worth revisiting, as is Colin Sutton's description of his former job as seeing the worst of human nature on a regular basis. I found that intriguing. Also, the podcast's got a bit more Johnny Depp in it, and we talk about Nick Wallace bit of chitter chattery around one of our favourite topics just in case you missed it for a week or two and Ben's thrilled to be told that he resembles a vegetable a celeriac to be precise and it was at the time when when Ben was working on Alistair Livingstone a super cops book Broken Blue Line where he says that life as Britain's super cop broke him so quite a chocker episode for your delight as well as a little trip back to dirty sanchez sounds a bit rude which is in there just because it made us titter a great deal at the time and if you haven't already then i hope you can either titter again or have a good old chortle this time round. And that was also a bit later in the year that we kicked off 2020 with our murder suggestions did I say suggestions? Um, I mean, our murder tips for you, for your delight in lockdown. So let's get to listening. Uh, by the way, rating and reviewing us would be really lovely as it keeps us on the radar in the bigger podcast pond. So we'd really appreciate it. Um, and so that people can find us, people like you, whose ears we bless. And you could win a prize. That's that's a lie. There's, there's no prize at all. Unless you call bi-weekly punishment a prize 
Also, I wanted to say congratulations to our friend of the podcast, Big Bear, for it's a bit late in coming, but for your new pad and your cooking up moonshine in your kitchen. So I hope all that's going really well. Great to hear. And buy me a coffee, forward slash YDLMF, just because Ben's not here and his eyes can't roll. But do have a look. Another way to support us, because uh, we do this all out of the goodness of our hearts. I'll stop rambling and tell you that you didn't let me finish podcast at gmail.com is how you can get hold of us. I'll just say it again. You didn't let me finish podcast at gmail.com. And let's get to it. See you in two weeks. So let me give you a brief introduction to Detective, your former Detective Chief Superintendent, uh, and before Chief you bang on, Colin Sutton. Yeah. I'd like to say Colin's fascinating. So do listen because he's so mildly spoken. You think, hang on, and then you realise that the content of what he's saying is really interesting. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, well, I you know I sort of met him several years ago now when we were working on these when he was working on these cases and I was just covering them and um, yeah found him incredibly engaging and we get um, to hear what, what Levi Belfield said to him for the, when they met for the first time and someone's like this yes. is the big cheese of the police wait yeah. for it it's unbelievable it wasn't difficult to find a title for this podcast <laughs> and that Levi Belfield surprisingly doesn't send Colin Christmas cards <laughs> So so what we're talking about here with Colin is how he went about catching Levi Belfield, who was attacking um, maybe dozens of women uh, in a period in the early part of the last decade. Joining us now is uh, former Detective Chief Inspector Colin Sutton from the Metropolitan Police. Colin, I mean, a lot of people who follow true crime will already be very, very well aware of you and your work. But um, for those who might be a little bit new to the genre or new to us, just tell us a little bit about uh, who you are and and your background. Yeah, I I was a a, a police officer for 30 years and, and not a second more. Um, and I started off in London. I went out on a sort of a missionary work in in West Yorkshire and Surrey for a few years and then came back into London. Uh, And I spent the last nine years or so of my service as a senior investigating officer on the Homicide Command in London, in West London primarily. It was a job I loved and I'd craved for a long time. When I got it, I, you know, wasn't really prepared to let it go. And during that time, I, I sort of, you know, it was reason, we, we were reasonably successful. I had a really good team and I was very lucky with them. And we, we sort of knocked off a good job, which was the, the, the Levi Belfield case, where we, we kind of took him off the streets and, and uh, made sure he couldn't do his killing and his abusing of mostly women uh, anymore. And then after that, I, I went over and sort of did a, a review of the the long-running case that was known as Operation Minstead, but was known in the media probably more often as, as the Night Stalker, which was a guy that was uh, breaking into houses of, of old ladies, mostly in southeast London, for about seventeen years, and sexually assaulting and raping some of them. So, and we, we managed to get him as well. Um, so that was quite a, a nice way to end up. And because those cases had sort of put me in contact with the media. Uh, I met a few journalists and knew a few, and they said, uh, you know, we could probably probably get to use you when you retire. So when I retired, I, I started doing a bit of sort of punditry, and uh, for mostly for, for, for ITV News, actually, but all, all sorts of news outlets and a bit of writing. And then I moved to East Anglia and kind of stopped doing the newsy stuff, but somehow found a, found a niche of um, 
of doing true crime documentaries for various people and, and then was persuaded into writing a book that I didn't think was any good and nobody would want to read and, and uh, that got picked up by a TV production company and they made a drama series out of it which Martin Clunes was starred in last year and which was very successful, was surprisingly successful really, although I think it was very good. And uh, so we're now doing another one on Delroy Grant, which um, we've just finished writing the, the scripts for. Um, and hopefully that will be uh, going into production soon if the virus lets us and uh, will be out next year. So is Martin Clunes going to play you again, Colin? He is, yeah, he's a glutton for punishment in that respect, <laughs> is Martin. <laughs> it's yeah. the role he's made his own. <laughs> and he was very good at it. And it, was, it, was, it was amazing, really, because I think he spent about, I don't know, seven or eight hours with me in total beforehand, and yet all my family and friends are saying, wow, he's got you, he's really got your mannerisms, you know, he's, he's really sort of studied you. I think it probably just shows, um, you know, what a, what, a, what a good actor he is. I, I told him that he will always be sort of Gary Strang from Men Behaving Badly, as far as I'm concerned. But, uh, <laughs> He can, he can probably, uh, you know, he, he proved he can do, uh, he, can, he can act, and, uh, he can definitely act, and, uh, and a good guy as well. I, I enjoy working with him. How strange is it watching somebody portraying you on TV like that? Yeah, it, I mean, it was at first, yes. I mean, by the time it actually went out and everybody saw it, I'd sort of seen it, you know, a few times, and I'd kind of got used to it by then, but it was, um, yeah, it was a bit it was a bit odd. I mean, I, I think the, 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 the hard thing to get your head around at first is the fact that nearly 10 million people decided to sit down in their living rooms and watch something that you were part of, that happened to you for real, you know, and you sort of think, God, you know, oh, is it that interesting? Do people really want to see this? And, and I suppose, I guess the answer is yes. And, and I think, you know, the, there are various sort of privileges and, and honours that you feel being trusted to investigate these serious things and do the best you can for them and uh, you don't realize quite how much um how much of an honor it is and how much you know it's a fortunate position you're in while you're doing it colin can i ask you about sort of the reason for all of this i want to know what you found was the most rewarding and what was the toughest you know homicide in london mm. must have the toughest and sort of most frightening job at times um i wouldn't say personally that i found it frightening i i think by the time i got to doing that i'd absorb the cynicism that sadly you get if you're dealing with 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 the extraordinary and the the sort of bizarre and and the the kind of off the off the normal scale um as, as you tend to as a police officer anyway and and i'd you know i'd always kind of separated the fact that the life and the things that go on when I go to work are very different from most people's lives and, and from my own life. So um, I, I never found it particularly sort of frightening. I, I found it, you know, it can be dispiriting. Um, it can be, you see the worst of human nature on a regular basis. Um, so I guess that that can be a bit sort of, you know, can, can lead you to sort of some dark thoughts sometimes. But essentially it was doing a job and, and doing that job to the best that you could and and being a murder detective meant that you have access to better resources and better scientific backup and you know very nearly anything that you want but there, there can be you know there's no doubt there's, there's there's nothing more important i suppose than than finding out someone who's committed a murder we first met colin i think um during the investigation into levi belfield and um yeah. and during that that trial and that that perhaps i think is one i'd really like to sort of talk to you about again mm. um i mean i think one of the things that i find fascinating and kind of almost ongoing i remember you saying this to me that one thing he liked to do was to control the situation around him yeah. and the kind of the ongoing almost 
drip feed we seem to have had since his conviction about him maybe confessing or maybe not confessing is almost like him trying to still do that oh i think that's absolutely right yeah i mean it's it's he doesn't like to be out of the headlines and and he he will you know he'll play games he's still playing games even from the the relative comfort and luxury of of hmp franklin or wherever he is at the moment i mean he 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 knows that he is able to command the attention of the media and so he can say what he likes really and it doesn't really matter because there's not much you can do to him he's still able to toy with the victims and their families and the people that loved the people that he killed and he does it because he can there's never been the the, the scintilla of remorse or or of uh, you know expression of, of sorrow for those that he's hurt or what he's done not not since you know, since he was arrested, he's, well, frankly, he's, he still says he didn't do any of it. My recollection is that, um, was it the white van, seeing that white van keep cropping up, that was kind of yeah. one of the first things that led you to him? We, we had the white van that the uh, people on my team that were doing the CCTV monitoring were very sort of diligent, and, and it would have been so easy to miss it. There were so many little white vans flitting around. In fact, there was one parked, you know, two cars in front or two spaces in front of of where Belfield's van ended up parked um, at the murder of Amelie Delagrange. But they did a very good job with that. And we had this van, but we couldn't see the, the number plate or, or you know, anything that was really going to be distinctive. And so we ended up with the possibility of having to do an inquiry to eliminate something like 25,000 vans. And that was going to be hard work, but I was determined that we would do it if we had to. But fortunately, these, his cases just attracted the the most amazing response from the local community because they they really saw it as something that threatened their 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 calm and their tranquil part of london and and part of that response was people who knew uh, you know suspects men they thought were suspects and one of those happened to be belfield's ex-partner to whom he'd been you know completely uh, savage during their relationships he was in all his relationships in terms of domestic violence and sexual abuse and uh, she came forward and said, you know, I think it might be him. And she told us that he had a white van that he used for wheel clamping and that struck a chord with uh, one of the inquiries we'd done about a local white Ford van. And we kind of pieced it together and realised that he was he was looking very good as our suspect and uh, never looked back from that day. And uh, it's my birthday in 2004. I remember it quite distinctly. Because I remember the, uh, from the trial that there was a lot of evidence around looking out for dents and marks on that particular van, wasn't it? Yeah, it was quite good because, you know, although it was just a white van with no registration number, he'd repaired, uh, after a fashion, some rust on the back doors by, by kind of riveting some sort of aluminium plate over, and that was pretty distinctive. The van itself had, had originally been used at Heathrow Airport airside, and so it had a plinth on the roof for the kind of orange rotating beacon that vehicles there have to have. And because Belfield, A, wasn't much of a driver and B, wasn't much of a mechanic, he not only curbed the wheel and had to put a different wheel on the front and the side, but he'd completely broken everything when he tried to replace a bulb in the headlamp. So he had this van going around for three quarters of an hour before Emily's murdered. And it's easy to pick up on all the CCTV that we had because it had this lump on the roof, this odd wheel, the front one of the headlights was out and it had these plates on the back door. So although we didn't have the registration number, the circumstances were were fortunate for us. You mentioned that it was on your birthday that you kind of mm. got this, I don't know, breakthrough moment. Describe yeah. what but that was like. Where were you and what happened exactly? We were working out of an office in Barnes at, at that point and uh, 
most of my team were out. They'd gone to try and find vans and eliminate them. And I sort of sent them off in pairs with with corporate credit cards and said, you know, don't come back to you've ticked all the vans off your list. Mm. And we were going through these these sort of um, suggestions of, from members of the public. And uh, that was when we came across it. I, I was absolutely clear from the moment that we identified the van that we had to pursue that van. That was going to lead us to it. And I had sort of equal clarity that when we, we came back with Belfield, that looking at his history, his his intelligence file and things he'd been arrested for and things people had said about him, that he was a really, really good suspect and was very likely to be our man. It was kind of euphoric in some ways because that's huge progress, but it's always tempered with the thought that, you know, there's a long way from a big difference between identifying the suspects and convicting him at court, you know. Of course, that was just really the start of a a very intense, intensive and detailed investigation that, that the team undertook for the for the next sort of two and a half years. So two and a half years from having the suspect and thinking this could be our guy or this is a very strong chance this is our guy to actually getting him in front of a judge. Yeah, to, to charging him, yeah. I mean, it was the trial was um, was very nearly three years after that. That was November of four and the trial started in, in October 2007. And it was one of those where, because we had no forensic evidence, there was no DNA, there were no fingerprints, there was no sort of smoking gun in that sense. It was an entirely circumstantial case that we built up with little bits of evidence from here and there and fitting it all together. Uh, we, we literally were investigating it right up until the day that we went through the doors of the court to start the trial. And that was the first trial. That was um, for Amelie and Marsha and, of course, the attempted murder of Kate Sheedy. Yeah, that's right. And, and then... He comes back to court, of course, because there's Millie Dowler. Yeah, well, it, it's, I mean, we, we, we'd identified or looked at Millie Dowler as a possible sort of, you know, one of his victims on that night in November 2004 because it stood out that he was living within, you know, 30, 40 yards of where Millie was last seen on the day that she disappeared. And, and then once we spoke to his then partner, she, she was able to confirm to us that he'd been to the flat that day so you know and what car he was in and there was a cctv image that surrey had of that car so we kind of alerted surrey to that and 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 they had you know they had their own investigation going on and they got round to it but in the end they were quite sort of tenacious with it and it took he wasn't charged with with millie's murder until 2010 i believe yeah 2010 so that was like eight years after she had gone missing in fact the trial wasn't until the year later 2011 and and uh, I'd retired by that point, um, but the, the slightly actually there's a the slightly sort of funny, not funny thing about that, but strange thing. As I said, I, I was kind of working for the media, and there was a newspaper that wanted to to give me one of their press passes and for me to go into the to the press box in the old Bailey and sort of cover that trial for them. But what I did, because I thought it was sensible, was I rang Brian Altman, who was the, the leading counsel who prosecuted Belfield for, for us as well as for Surrey. And so I knew quite well. And I said, look, you know, what do you think about this? And, and he was of the view that it would be a bit of a sideshow because Belfield would see me there and not want me there. And he would kick up a fuss because he could and thought that would do them some good. And it was really unnecessary and it was just going to cause problems. So I, I politely... Uh, declined this kind offer to go and sit through the trial. Oh, you well, sat next to me. <laughs> yes, quite possibly. Yeah, we could have had some fun. You mentioned that um, Belfield wouldn't want you there. What mm. What was your relationship like? Obviously, it's not going to be great. But um... well, no. I mean, I, I don't. I don't. He doesn't send a Christmas card these days. Um, <laughs> he, he 
It's really, really interesting because he, he was just completely uh, sort of rude and disrespectful and horrid from the word go. He was introduced to me in the charge room of custody office at uh, Heathrow Police Station, as it then was, because that's where we took him. And, and one of my officers said, you know, Mr. Belfield, this is Mr. Sutton. He's the boss. And he said, fuck off, prick. And that kind of set the set the kind of tone for our relationship um, over the next sort of well, and to, to date really. Um, Where do you think that came from? Uh, he he was just he was just disrespectful to everybody in authority. He did said whatever he liked. You know, I think what you have to understand about him is this is a man who's who's he wasn't particularly educated, but he was quite sort of street smart and quite intelligent, and he thought that he had a degree of invincibility. And he'd always managed to charm, talk or bully his way out of any scrape that he'd had in his life, really, up until that point. And I think he believed right up until, you know, he was in the witness box giving evidence um, at his own trial for us. He still believed that he was going to win. He was going to beat it. He beat us. He was, he was better than us. Uh, and thankfully he wasn't. What do you think gives someone that idea? Well, I think if you were, there's a phrase in cricket, isn't there, a flat track bully? I think if, if if you kind of base your life upon only interacting and only trying to achieve and only having objectives amongst those who you can overpower, who you can outthink, who you can outmuscle, then you get this sort of false sense of invincibility. Um, and Belford largely did that. You know, he, he kind of just hung around the estates and the local places and he picked up sort of waifs and strays and people that he knew he could bully and that he could intimidate and got them to to do his bidding and to do his running around for him and, and it indeed you know paid them a pittance to to work in his car clamping business but it was always he was always careful to make sure that he didn't take on people that he he thought he couldn't control i think he didn't Did you... start with the charm offensive with you no he probably <laughs> thought i was beyond that <laughs> Colin, you said that um, you thought he believed he would kind of beat the system and, and beat you guys mm. right up until the moment he was giving evidence. Do you think that's when the penny dropped? I think I know exactly the moment the penny dropped. The, the penny dropped, he was twisting himself into into a, a, a difficult position of lying about um, something after the murder of Marshall McDonald and going on holiday and selling a car and... And of course, Brian Altman is very patient and very calm, but very, very forensic. And and you know, you 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 can't you can't get past him. And he'd bamboozled Belfield to such a degree that Belfield blurted out in court, "I'm struggling here. I'm fighting for my life." And when he used those words, I looked first at the judge and then at the jury to see if those words had hit home. And I think it you know they did with 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 both her ladyship and and uh, and the jurors because. The unsaid thing I was thinking was, well, that was more than you gave Marsha or Amelie the chance to do, isn't it? Fight for your life. Why should we actually make allowances for you because you think you're fighting for yours? It was one of those moments where everybody in court goes, oh, don't mm. they? And so there's and, that, that, that moment yeah. of the indrawn breath. and Yeah, I, I think that's right. And I, but I think he, he, he you know, he's bright enough to realise it as well after he'd said it. And there was this sort of this, this intake of breath and just a... A pause, you know, a brief pause in in proceedings, and I think that was the moment he knew it was all going sideways. Yeah, he was very surprising, actually, physically. I mean, obviously, he's a big guy, but his mm. voice wasn't what I expected when he started to speak. 
No, it's funny. I mean, having listened to hours and hours of conversations between himself and his mother, it's kind of re- reversed. He had this kind of quite insignificant, squeaky, high-pitched voice, and she had the sort of gravelly, uh, the gravelly deep voice. Um, yeah, it was all a bit. It was all a bit odd, really. But uh, he didn't like people taking the Mickey out of it. There were, there were some things, some of which I won't repeat, even on your podcast. And I know you're reasonably relaxed about things like that, but there is there are limits. But uh, he he. Um, yeah, he, there were certain things he didn't like people saying to him, and taking the mickey out of his voice was one of them. Oh, what else? He didn't like uh, jibes about his weight, um, particularly when conjoined with very foul language. Oh, put it that way. Um, <laughs> he didn't like he didn't like being called a fat something or other, particularly. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, yeah, so a phrase that alliterates. So, of course, none of us ever used it, of course. <laughs> and, I mean, I, I again, I remember, sort of, you know, when the, the guilty verdicts came in, and not so much in the case you were involved with, but in the second trial, the Millie Dowler trial, um, he was found guilty of that, and then the jury was sent um, home for the night, yeah. and what was quite sad was that there was a case linked to that. Rachel, and, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Rachel Cowles, I think. Yeah, and, um, that's right. The jury hadn't returned a verdict on that, but because all the papers splurged with the whole Millie story, the mm. judge ruled that they wouldn't be able to give a fair verdict on the, the Rachel Cowles case. I suppose, um, as an, I know you were retired by then, but as a, as a sort of a police officer, would, can you sympathise with the officers involved in that? They would have found that frustrating. I, I can sympathise, empathise and empathise with them because it happened exactly the same in the first trial. There was still... Um, an abduction and another assault uh, outstanding that the Jew hadn't decided upon, and exactly the same thing happened. The, the, the judge yes. didn't let them go ahead with that because of the quote from, from defence counsel, welter of overnight adverse publicity. I think that was, was um, yes, Anna Maria Rennie and Irma Yeah, Rennie. absolutely. Yes. And, yeah. and the funny thing about it was is we've got these sort of circumstantial cases where we've, 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 we've built these painstaking circumstantial cases together and we get... A majority verdict on Kate and a majority verdict on Marsha's murder, uh, a unanimous verdict on Amelie Delagrange's murder. They're all the ones that were kind of interdependent and there was the, you know, the, the, there was the circumstantial evidence. Anna Maria Rennie picked him out on an ID parade and said, this is the man who abducted me. And the Irma Dragoshi case, there was a friend in the car with him who said, I saw Levi stop, get out, batter her, get back in the car and say, why did you do that? Well, I did it because I could. And the jury couldn't agree on that. So it was kind of weird in some ways that the two cases that had the direct evidence, they found it hard to agree on. And these these, these sort of subtle nuances and innuendo and interdependent cases, they can mix them. I mean, it didn't ultimately matter. One of the great things that we did was that we knew that there were a large group of, of, of people, group of women who had been attacked by this man and whose case we would never take before the court because we could never find the evidence for it. It was too late. But what I did do was I deployed my family liaison officers to those women and said, look, what you need to understand is this is not going to happen for you because we can't do it. Nevertheless, the important thing here is that this guy goes away and he can't hurt anybody else. And in a sense, your justice is her justice, is your justice, is her justice. And we kind of built this network of support for them. So much so that we had people whose cases never had a chance of coming before the court turning up to see him be sentenced on the day after he was convicted. 
how many of those victims were there, Colin? I mean, how many do you think he attacked all up, if you if you were able to guess? Belfield? Uh, dozens, I think. Probably less than 100, more than 20. I mean, yeah, we, we'll, we'll never know. When we had the, the TV programme last year, I had seven or eight people come forward and say, yeah, you know, this, this guy attacked me. I know it was him that attacked me, and I never thought people would be interested back then, or, you know, I didn't want the embarrassment of saying I'd been raped, as in one case... Or I, I was raped by this man and reported it to police and they withdrew it because I, I didn't like the shame and having the police cars around at my house and my neighbours seeing. And, um, you know, and in 2001, that's what happened. You know, the police just said, oh, OK, sign there. We won't investigate it then. Yeah. Uh, wouldn't happen now, thankfully. Uh, but, but so, you know, it's just it's, it's open ended. But he, he was he was he was prolific. And that, that's one of the greatest things really about what we achieved. It wasn't just the fact that we got justice for our victims and he's paid for, for what he did. It's the certainty that he would have carried on offending and carried on offending, abusing, assaulting, probably killing too. Um, and, you know, there were just more further dozens of victims, potential victims that would have been victims in the future if we hadn't have taken him out of the game. Hello there. Hello, Victoria. How are you? I'm really well, despite the dribbly weather. <laughs> Is that the only thing that's dribbling in Plymouth? <laughs> Everything's dribbling in Plymouth. <laughs> Something to do with the age, I think. <laughs> Great, and the fact that you've welcome. had a child. Doesn't, isn't that, doesn't you that keep have picking on that. It does, you can have a child and spring back, you know. I'm living testament. <laughs> <laughs> the thing is, though, I think you know you're very you you you're you're a very lucky lady to have a child because there are lots of women who'd love to have children and can't have them or don't have them. <laughs> Thank you. Where's this going? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> we this wasn't rehearsed. What it, we never what rehearsed was, anything anyway. What, what was rehearsed, rehearsed was that we were going to be nicer to listeners. So oh. welcome. I've tried to say it. This is thrice now. I've tried to say it. <laughs> welcome. If you're a new listener, this is how we go on. Yep. Welcome so to everybody. And I think, do, do, do I owe you, hang on, do I owe you an apology or should I be gloating? Because I think we've had some listener feedback saying that they love it when I'm nasty to you. So, <laughs> or is it that they love it when you're nasty to me? I can't remember which. Oh, you're just a bad boy, Ben. Oh, God, I'm a bad old man. What, like a, but what, do, what is it that women say that I think is slightly verging on the victim status? I love a bad boy. God. <laughs> I don't. And, and, and so then you get apologize. these whining guys saying, "Oh, girls never like nice guys like me." And it's like, no wonder you're just whining. Of course they don't. No, you got to be as horrible as possible, like Ando. But no one likes him. <laughs> no, it's true. <laughs> Nobody likes me. So, who are you then? I'm Ben Ando. The unlikable. I'm a a former BBC News correspondent. I used to be the crime reporter for a while. Um, And now now I'm free and live every week on your podcast. Come and get it. I'm Victoria Mitzi and I have to endure this once, once weekly. I'm a journalist. I'm a general mucker about her in Plymouth, but that's all going to end. I am a super sleuth 
in the local area, I'm getting quite a reputation now, and I'm a fitness queen and I love to dance. You know, a super sleuth, that's the same as a blooming stool pigeon or snitch, isn't it? <laughs> is it? I thought a, well, no, a snitch is a different thing. A super sleuth is the same as a busybody, a nosy neighbour. Your curtains <laughs> yeah. always twitching. <laughs> Not just my curtains. <laughs> Oh, I don't want to think about what's twitching in Plymouth. <laughs> I don't want to think about what's twitching in Cambridgeshire. <laughs> Too many things are twitching in Cambridgeshire. Anyway, back to this apology. Yes. Um, I what, don't what are we sorry believe for? it's just listener interaction that you have to apologise about, Ando. Uh, what else do I have to apologise about? Um, okay, we, we get together to record this podcast. Uh, hang on, I do know what I've got to apologise about. <laughs> <laughs> I can't believe you're mentioning my You're on the spot and I'm not editing any of this out now. So so we recorded a podcast and it was we both I I really enjoyed it. I'm sure I'm sure we Victoria kind of endured it through gritted teeth with that famous expression on her face. But I really I really enjoyed it. And it was afterwards when I came to um sort of send the recording over that I realised that something had gone wrong. Possibly possibly finger trouble at this end (laughs) and there was when he went there the cupboard was bare (laughs) oh well it wasn't the first time was it ben well yes it was the first time i don't think i've missed any recordings before oh i I just meant about your bare cupboard oh yeah my cupboard's always bare (laughs) so uh yeah well sorry where was that apology then (laughs) oh yes i suppose what i've done there is i've reported what happened But that was a crime, a crime of audio. But st- just out of interest, I mean, okay, I'm very sorry, but just out of interest, exactly, wh- exactly, what am I apologising for? I mean, it was a mistake. For being a dumb cop. Like... So and this it... apology. Yeah. So what was just out of interest? <laughs> what exactly am I apologising for? Uh, for not pressing record. I'm yes, sorry. No, I understand. B- I understand BBC I... former correspondent <laughs> fails to Look, press record. That's yeah, the headline. Yeah. No, I, I get that. I get that license I made... fee wastage. <laughs> We're not getting any share of the license fee for this rubbish. <laughs> uh, I do understand that. But what have I somehow put you about then? Have I put you out? Has it caused you disgruntlement? Uh, another hour or so, and then all the setting up. You've no idea, listeners, how arduous. Hello, can I text you before I can WhatsApp you and then I can maybe telephone you? Are we systems go? Okay, message me before you call me. Bring, well, I'll tell you bring. What. It's what? Fernando what? on the phone. What? <laughs> Why don't you put this all on a recording, put it on a premium phone line and people can dial 0898 to hear Mitt's moan? <laughs> well, that's quite what everyone's doing here. So it's not let's the kind get of moaning they it. might have in mind, but there we go. Anyway, what are we talking about today, Victoria? You're going to have to wait because my tabs have just crashed. (laughs) (laughs) Now who owes who an apology? It's a COVID special. We're talking about naughty SMPs. Oh, we are, yes. Tell me more. Tell me more about MP Margaret Ferrier. Well, there's been massive outcry for her resignation. And she travelled we worked out about 400 miles was it with a suspected covid should have been self-isolated self-isolating she went to parliament 
Yeah, but the thing is, she so she 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 has these, you know, she has some minor symptoms. I don't know if it's a cough or a temperature, whatever it was. She goes and gets tested, and then what? While she's waiting for the test results, she travels on the train down to London. She meets up with MPs. She goes to Parliament. She, I think, she said something in the House of Commons. She, she has goes dinner. to a sauna and massage parlour. She, she she has dinner with a colleague, <laughs> and then she gets a positive result. So it's like, okay, wow, she's had contact with all these people when she should have been isolating. And Done yes, selfies she, at she, the swimming pool. Well, she went. To, did you see the photo of her at the swimming pool? Very proud. She was very proud of that <laughs> pool shot with all her clothes on. She didn't even go in, did she? All she went for was a moustache depilation. Well, all, at the swimming pool, all I was eagerly looking for in the background was that poster that dates from the 1970s that says, um, no running, no bombing and no petting. That's what she was actually trying to take a selfie of, but she it was a bad selfie. <laughs> She's only got her bad self to blame. Have you ever been petted in a swimming pool, Mitz? but we were quite interested about this petting definition weren't we um and it runs on from the halden devon dogging story that we covered <laughs> about 10 episodes ago what? now so you're saying that petting is like dogging well i'm wondering why they're referring to pets to th- sexual activity really but odd. it's been it's been in swimming pools since like i don't know night like public information signs since about 1972 it seems like this i this don't know when was the last of... time you saw this sign really when did oh, you quite last recently see... oh, recently did, you... did it say yeah. no petting? i mean okay within the last couple of years certainly i think anyway. i actually think that swimming pool managers now put it in there as a bit of an in joke and that nobody now wants to get rid of the no petting sign because it's come like it's become like this cultural thing that everybody laughs about the idea that they go to a swimming pool and stand there petting I dare you the last time the, the last time is that that's me the next time you're getting down to it because you get down to it all the time these days um, what, you petting? go you go let's Am I a do heavy some petter? <laughs> you are you fit that definition <laughs> I'm a better petter I dare you to go listen to me I dare you how old am I 12 um, to, to go let's do some petting see what, she, <laughs> see what he or she says well, I, I, I will let you know what he or she says after I've done, after I've been a trendsetter petter. <laughs> Can um, I just say that it does to refer? Okay, I'm looking at, I'm looking online now. It does refer uh, to stroke or pat of an animal, and that is the cross. <laughs> that is the crossover uh, to you know touching and caressing. Sorry if I'm, I'm sorry, getting everyone too. So hot if you're under standing in a swimming here. pool and you're you're touching and caressing somebody, you're petting them. I suppose yeah, I can see the sense in that in a way. <laughs> so if it's the kind of petting that you go up and tap a dog on the head kind of thing, I might do that in a swimming pool. I wouldn't do the other one. Okay. Well, I mean, yeah, but about the dogging. You won't do any dogging. <laughs> no, I save that for outside the swimming pool. <laughs> so Margaret does... Ferrier Margaret okay, sorry, Ferrier, sorry just one more question oh, because yeah, on I, you know how we get stuck whenever dogging gets mentioned we <laughs> yes. talk for about three oh, quarters of an talk, hour talk, about talk. it I know you no, love dogging, talk point. dogging I want to know if petting does refer does kind of cross over into the action of you know stroking and caressing where does dogging come from <laughs> <laughs> We're still stuck on the dogging, dogging, aren't we? Yeah, well, you know, I mean, what kind of style is that? Rough. <laughs> bum, bum. <laughs> You're barking mad. <laughs> I've got to stop. Right, uh, back to Margaret Ferrier. So I love the fact that, okay, she went to the swimming pool and she also, I'm not sure whether she went before or after, but she also went to a <laughs> beauty salon. I don't know whether she went to get her moustache 
sort of waxed off or what it, what she went for. But you can't do that, Ben. You can't go. What? You can't depilate and then go to the pool. Do you can't ever you? shave your head and then go to the gym? Yeah, all the time. Oh well, it's not supposed to be done because it makes your skin irritated. Oh, what, so you get like a red mark. <laughs> yes, she gets a mark like that. <laughs> Are you saying that Margaret Ferrier might have had a sort of like a red mark round her mouth? <laughs> it may have been mistaken. Perhaps one that's mistaken for something else. What could that what, be? What? I don't know, you told me Victoria. We didn't talk about this. We haven't already had this in-joke on the last podcast, everyone. <laughs> the one that Ben didn't record. <laughs> and yes, it's a Dirty Sanchez. <laughs> dirty Sanchez. <laughs> Margaret Ferrier's had a dirty... She's gone to the swimming pool and people are looking and saying, you think she's just had a dirty Sanchez? Actually, all she's done is gone to get her moustache ripped off and then stand in a swimming pool for a selfie, which she's going to get in loads of trouble for. Anyway, the swimming pool people are nudging each other and saying, you know what, she's just... <laughs> no, one's, no one wants a heavy pet her now. <laughs> <laughs> no, no swimming, no bombing, no heavy petting, and no dirty Sanchezing. And I think Ben, really, you should give a definition for listeners. Yeah, those of them that don't know what this could be. I, I think listeners can look up dirty Sanchez. Okay, I don't think there are many listeners who won't know what a dirty Sanchez. Yeah, especially is. if you're listening to this, you dirty dog. Yeah, anybody listening to us is—they're—they're they're all dirty Sanchez champions, aren't they? <laughs> dirty champions. Anyway, they put Nicola... a flirty into the flirty Sanchez. <laughs> What's a flirty Sanchez? You turn up looking hopeful with a little bit of a kind of bull's horns around your mouth. <laughs> I think that's what Margaret Ferry was doing a flirty Sanchez. Tweets, it's sort of like a photo of her in the pool saying, great time at the local pool, hashtag Dirty Sanchez. <laughs> well, at least you would have got something good out of it. And I don't mean that. I, I don't mean that. But anyway, Nicola Sturgeon wanted... Well, didn't she want to come down really hard on her? <laughs> she did. No one gets a Dirty Sanchez in Scotland without Nicola knowing it. Going from now, I can't. Oh. I can't carry on. I can't. My eyes stop. are watering a bit. Let's go and bye join it. Let's go and join bye a bye. cult. <laughs> okay, we'll create a cult. We'll create our own cult. Oh, this is one already. Oh, let me hey, give sir. out the email because I want you to talk to us and tell us where you're listening from. And we appreciate your listens and we appreciate your interactions because we've got nice following people. And please do click and everything. What rate, review, and subscribe. Oh, is that what people say? If they're trying to no, sound you say rape, because you've got crime <laughs> on the brain. Yeah, I have. It's true. All right. Catch you later. Bye. Bye. Bye.